how many of you the idea of rest appeals to you? Raise your hand. Yeah? Just don't do it right now. I, I was thinking of some of those rest scenarios, like who here would like to be sitting, I mean after church, sitting by a mountain lake in a comfortable chair? That sound restful? That sound restful to you? Sitting by a mountain lake. That sounds good. Strolling along the beach of Lake Michigan. Who would like to does that sound restful to you? How many of you think fly fishing on in Montana? Would that be restful to you? That'd be great. Uh, some of you would like you uh, tailgating over by the big house. There, how big am I? Yeah, to say that that would be restful to you. Yeah. How many of you say no? Thank you. I want to. I would like to have a weekend of skiing in Colorado. That would be restful. A couple of you. One of you. Yeah. Weekend of skiing in Colorado. You say, no thank you, give me the corner of a, of a little book shop, an indie book shop or, or a coffee shop. Raise your hand if you'd be with me there. All right, there's two of us doing that. That would be really restful to me too. What is it about the idea of rest that appeals to us? Why is it that we have such a deep longing, all of us, for rest one of my favorite songs by Fernando Ortega, the lyrics go like this. It's called Find Me a Place on This. It's called A Place on the Earth. And they go like this, the lyrics go, Find me a place on the earth where a weary man can rest and listen for your voice in the turning seasons. A quiet place in the world where I can bow and confess that I fear where you have brought me, mysterious God. Find me a place on the earth where a weary man can rest Isn't it interesting how when we have these deep and persistent longings, we usually express them in music or in arts or in poetry or in prose. They're they're like the soundtrack of our culture. And that's uh, been going on for a long time. Matter of fact, um, there's there's a passage in the Bible. And when I go out and walk in 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 the lower here on Metro Park, I sometimes will park my car up by where that little bridge is, and then I will walk down, uh, I will walk south. And I will walk south as far as you are, if, you, if you're familiar with the park, there's a place that it's, it's very open, and the sun will beat down on your head while you're walking there. And, and then you'll, you'll, if you walk far enough, if you're going to walk about an hour, about a half hour out at my pace, you're going to go through a little arch of trees right there. It's, in the spring of the year, uh, it's all... Uh, uh, a red bud, purple uh, blossoms. Uh, but there's an arc of trees, and it's cool, and the breeze goes through that arc of trees. And, and when I read this passage, I think of that arc of trees on a sunny walk. It's just that beautiful. It's just that poetic. And it expresses this idea of rhythm in life. We have a rhythm in life of work and rest, of work and rest. Our hearts beat, and then they rest, and then they beat. And then they rest. We, we're awake and then we sleep. We're awake and, and then we sleep. And this is what Ecclesiastes 3, one of the most beautiful bits of poetry. This is my arc of, uh, of uh, shady walk. Um, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Time to kill. A time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, 
and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. And can we just add to that, there's a time to work and then there's a time to rest. And rest is one of the great longings of our soul. We're in a series of messages this summer on deep human longings and how they can draw us away from God or how they can draw us to God. And today I just want to talk about the deep human longing that we all have for rest. And this is meaningful to me. Why is it that we have such a powerful, deep human longing for rest? Why is that? Today I want to give you three reasons why that is true. And then we'll be done. This shouldn't take more than a couple of hours. Number one, you long for rest because you were created for rest. You long for rest because you were created for rest. And we know that in the Bible, the Bible talks about this idea of Sabbath, right? And it, it occurs early in the Bible. As a matter of fact, you would think that Sabbath comes from the civil law of Israel, right? You would think that. You would think, I remember that. That's the the day that God said it was the law for Israel to set aside that would be on Saturday, the Sabbath. But did you realize that the, the mention of that rest is in the second chapter of the Bible? You can find it there in Genesis chapter 2. And it's just interesting, it says in Genesis 2 and verse 1, and the heavens and earth were all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day... God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. He worked in creating the world for six days, I believe six literal 24-hour days. And then the Bible says, then he stopped working and he rested. And then there's a bit of commentary on that. Um, In verse 3, and then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. Now, why was that? Why did God rest? Did God rest because he was tired? No, he's an untiring God. He rested because he was done. He stopped working. But then he blessed, he sanctified this day. There's a principle here, an idea It goes all the way back to creation. Why is it that we have such a longing for rest? Because God created us to have a longing for rest. It's a legitimate thing. It's woven into our very creation. And so when you think about Sabbath, you think about creation in Sabbath, and then you do think about Israel in Sabbath. And and this kind of is uh, foreshadowing. It's an, it's a, it's a, uh, an echo or a shadow or a foreshadowing of things beautiful that would come, and we'll give detail about that. But, it, but God taught Israel to observe a Sabbath. He did it in an interesting way. Remember the incident in Exodus 16 with the manna? And he said, how many days are they going to have the manna to gather? How many days? Six days, but how many days are in a week? Seven, and so you see, he, he taught them to gather enough on Saturday, or excuse me, on Friday to, to carry over on their Sabbath, on Saturday, to have enough for that day, so they wouldn't have to gather on that day. And then when he encoded that in the Ten Commandments, right? how many of you know the Ten Commandments? Raise your hand, know the Ten Commandments? Who wants to come and say all ten right now? Huh? Oh yeah? Okay. All right. Yeah. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Then my favorite one. Oh, everybody knows that one. All the, all the parents know that one. Honor your father and mother. Yeah. Right? And what's the sixth commandment? You shall not kill. And you shall not, verse uh, seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Ninth commandment, don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet. So you, you did know them there, didn't you? Someday, if you give me a little extra encouragement, I will teach all of you the Ten Commandments in 20 minutes, but you have to be willing to get up and move around to do that. But this fourth commandment is the interesting commandment. It's not repeated in the New Testament. Of all the Ten Commandments, it's the only one not repeated in the New Testament. There's a specific reason for that, but it was important. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. This was the civil law of Israel, but it was also ceremonial law. Now, the reason we know that, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, is in the New Testament says that Sabbaths are part of the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law, the, the, the laws that were given for Israel to practice these ceremonies were pictures of Christ. They pointed to Christ. And so you have these echoes or these foreshadowings of Jesus that are really early in the Bible. And one of the first foreshadowings of Jesus early in the Bible is the day of rest. Isn't that interesting? If you want a picture of Jesus, Jesus is pictured by rest. And this is so serious in the Old Testament. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, in the civil law of Israel, that to violate a Sabbath was a capital offense? You know what that means? A capital offense means you die for doing that. How serious was God about trying to get his people to understand that rest is an important part of living? Very serious. So you have the Sabbath in creation. You have the Sabbath in Israel. And then you have the Sabbath in Jesus. Now, when Jesus came along, he kept the Sabbath. He was in that economy of Israel, right? And he kept the Sabbath. He was faithful to do that. But there were people, and he was always sparring with them, who added to God's law, legalists who added to God's law. They would either say, you have to keep God's law under your own power to be saved, or they would teach that you have to keep God's law under your own power to be sanctified, or they would teach you have to keep God's law plus the additions to God's law. And do you realize this in Mark and in Luke? And in John, all together, if you count them up, there are six confrontations that Jesus has with these Pharisees, and they were conflicts over Sabbath. And almost all of them were Jesus was doing a beautiful work on the Sabbath for people. And in one of the cases, he says to the, to the people, to the Pharisees, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, the Sabbath is all about me. I am the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. This was blasphemy to them. He had every right to say it. But to them it was blasphemy. His, they knew that in saying that, he was saying he is God. And then he also said in, in one of those confrontations, those six confrontations, two in Mark, two in Luke, two in John, in one of them he said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That's really interesting, isn't it? Jesus, when he taught on the Sabbath, said, while you're in this, in, in this Jewish economy, under the Jewish civil law, you keep the, six, the, the, the Saturday Sabbath, and, and, but you don't add to that. And you realize that it's for the purpose of, it's for your good. And it's a picture of me. And then you have the, the New Testament church and its relationship to the Sabbath. And that's really, you know, very interesting. I don't know, did I make little slides for you on this so you can remember this? 
You have the, the, the New Testament church and its relationship to the Sabbath. When the resurrection happened, there were never any more positive references to Sabbath keeping after that. The church went from the Sabbath to the Lord's day. Now, there, there are different ways of looking at this, right ways and wrong ways. Here's one of the wrong ways, I believe, to look at Sabbath. Have you ever heard the term Sabbatarianism? It means people that make a law out of Saturday, and there are groups that do this, that say you have to worship on Saturday. The Seventh-day Adventists do this. The Seventh-day Baptists do this. And, and some of us uh, Baptists and Puritans and Reformed people and so forth, they, they carry over a bit of that. The Sabbatarian idea is that the, the law is perpetual. They will say, well, it's in the Ten Commandments. It's perpetual. It's timeless. And we always have to keep the Saturday Sabbath. You probably don't believe that or you wouldn't be here today. Then there is this other idea that's what we call the Sabbath transference theology. And that idea is a little bit more compelling to people, to Christians. And again, the Reformed groups uh, practice this. If you look even in the old... Baptist confessions of faith and the Presbyterian confessions of faith. You have the, the Lord's Day being, they call it, the Christian Sabbath. And they, and they carry over some of the strictures of the Sabbath and just say, well, now Sunday is the Sabbath. That would be called Sabbath transference. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe that the, the Lord's Day didn't become the Christian Sabbath. I believe the Lord's Day replaced the Sabbath and that Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. And so you can't put upon you know, others these, these strictures or these, these restrictions. And yet the, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, you have a definitive passage on this. You might want to turn to Hebrews chapter 4 because verses 1 through 11 in Hebrews chapter 4 speak very interestingly about this. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 1 through 11. And you want to study this a little bit more on your own. But just hear this now as I read Hebrews 4. Uh, this is, again, it's a book written to who? That was a trick question, right? What's it called? Hebrews. Hebrews. Who's it written to? Hebrews. Hebrews. Jewish people, right? So now you have Jewish converts, people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and believe that Jesus is Messiah. And, and you know, imagine if I came along to you one day and I said, no more Christmas celebration for you. No more. We're not going to do that anymore. Absolutely none. There'll be no gifts exchanged. There'll be no plum pudding. Whoever eats plum pudding anyway, right? No more Christmas trees. No more, no more jingle bells. No more, you know, orgy of spending. No more going to grandma's and having those, uh, that just, it's just over now. It's completely over with no more. We're going to do that anymore. Not going to do Christmas. Not going to do Easter. Not going to do Thanksgiving. All of our holidays just changed. <laughs> Maybe a little bit what it would have been like for Jewish converts who were so given to the law and then groups of them to the laws that were man-made on top of the laws. And when Jesus comes back to life on the resurrection day, on the Lord's day, the Sunday, the resurrection day, the, the day of worship of the church becomes Sunday. And it goes down through the ages, through centuries and all over the world. The day of Christian worship is Sunday. And the Sabbath is not observed. There's no example of observing the Sabbath. There's no command to observe the Sabbath after that. Zero. None. And the only references in the New Testament to Sabbath observance were when Paul would use going to a synagogue where they were still observing the Sabbath as an opportunity for evangelism. But the New Testament church would meet on the first day of the week. They would gather on the first day of the week. And so to these Jewish people, there was a book written to these Jewish people who were going through this, this, uh, this adjustment, if you will. And this is the language about Sabbath. 
Therefore, since a promise, and I'm reading from Hebrews 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. You want to experience this Sabbath, this rest. That's what he's saying. And uh, indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter into rest. So what is that? What is that? What does that phrase mean? That phrase is a synonymous phrase to salvation. When you enter into rest, that's what, you, that's what happened when you got saved. When these Jewish converts believed in Jesus, they no longer had to slavishly obey the the law if they thought they had to obey the law to be saved, but they entered into salvation or they entered into rest. They entered into Sabbath. And then there's a a reference from the Old Testament that the Scriptures talk about in the Old Testament, an example in the Old Testament of entering into Canaan as a symbol of entering into rest. And we use it as a symbol of entering into Christ and having that rest. Verse 9 says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. There's something that we look forward to, a rest we look forward to. So there's the rest that we labor to enter into. In other words, to make sure we understand that coming to faith in Jesus Christ is, is synonymous with rest. And there's the rest that we look forward to. There's a day coming that we look forward to that. And verse 11 says, let us therefore be diligent to enter into rest. In other words, look out, Jewish people that you don't kind of stumble back into your old ways of legalism. Be diligent about this and embrace this rest that you have in Jesus Christ. Why is it that we have this longing for rest? We have this longing for rest because we were created with a longing for rest within us. And then it's because we were redeemed uh, for rest. Now, um, uh, you, you've heard me tell the story about Francis Schaeffer and his uh, unique ministry there in the in Switzerland. And so he moves his family to Switzerland for ministry, and he discovers a ministry that kind of crops up out of that, of ministry to disaffected students, ones that had been exposed to Christianity, but had kind of lost their bearings on it. And the students would come there to ski with his daughter initially, and, but they began to build this community called Labrie, or shelter there in the Alps. And the, the students would come, and they would ski, but they would also work there in the shelter, and they would study Christianity, and they would get their questions answered. Well, as they begin to develop their life there, as they begin to build their life there, Francis and Edith Schaefer noticed something unusual in the little village of Champray in the Alps. He said he noticed that on Saturday night at 6 o'clock, the village chapel bells would ring. And he thought no one ever gathered for anything. The bells would ring and nobody would gather. And over and over again, he would notice the beautiful tolling of the bells on Sabbath Eve, on Saturday night, before the, the gathering of the people on Sunday, the bells would toll, but nobody would come. One day, he went to the village and he said, you know, you have an odd custom. The chapel bell rings at 6 o'clock every Saturday night, but no one ever gathers for worship. Why? And they said, oh, the reason that we ring the chapel bell at 6 o'clock on Saturday night is to remind everyone that it's time to prepare for a day of worship. I think that the church needs to hear the chapel bells ring again. And remember the beauty of the day of Christian worship, which in, the, in Hebrews chapter 10 says, don't forsake, says to these same Jewish people, you don't have the Sabbath, but don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together 
Some are doing that even more as the day is approaching. The longer that we get, the more people are going to play on the day when people ought to be assembling together. It's not a slavish, legalistic Sabbath observance. It's the gathering he calls us to. We are actually defined by it. A church is a called-out assembly. What is a church that doesn't assemble? It's not a church. And so we have this beautiful, freeing idea of a gathering, of an assembly. It's not a Sabbath. It replaces the Sabbath. So you were created for rest, and you were redeemed for rest. There's a picture of Jesus' redemption. And when I say redemption, what it should make you think about is a picture. And that picture, we've been over this before, is a picture of the slave market, right? So we picture the slave market. And who's the slave in the slave market? Let's just say it's you. And you're being bought, and you're being sold. And then along comes one who pays a price, a ransom price. And the one who pays this ransom price for your freedom is our great hero, our great conquering king, our savior, Jesus Christ, who with his life, he pays this ransom price for us. And out of the slave market, you know, of sin and bondage and death and hell and, 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 and being restless, he redeemed. How, who is more restless than a slave? Who is more in need of rest than a slave? And when we're enslaved to our sin, we have no rest. The Bible says that. The wicked are like the troubled sea. His waters cast up mire and dirt. There's no rest, says my God, for the wicked. Before we know the Lord, we really have no rest inside. It doesn't matter if we do sit on the margin of a mountain lake or we do fly fish in Montana or we do have an unlimited amount of spending money to go shopping. We still don't have rest in our soul until our soul is at rest with the Lord and he's redeemed us. Why is it we have a longing for rest? Because we were created that way. God created us to have rest. And because we're redeemed in order to have rest for our souls. Do you see that? You see that even more when you see like in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 15, God is talking to Israel and he's talking to them about the Sabbath and he doesn't appeal to creation in Deuteronomy 5 and 15. He appeals to their time when they were slaves. Why should you keep the Sabbath? Sometimes he says, well, you should keep the Sabbath because God established that Sabbath in creation. But in this case, that wasn't the appeal. He said, why do you keep the Sabbath? Because you were slaves in Egypt, and now you're, you were restless, and now you were, re, you were redeemed, and your, your ransom price was paid, and you were released from making bricks seven days a week. Let my people go so that they can worship me. Over and over again was the word there. Isn't that fascinating? Now, it's this important then that we understand that if we were made for freedom, if we're made for rest, then there are two things that should never happen. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, uh, uh, refer to one. This is Colossians 2, fascinating passage in Colossians 2 that talks about being pulled back into this kind of Jewish legalism. And Paul's saying, don't, remember this is the passage that says, don't subtract from the faith, every fundamentalist believes that, but don't add to the faith, that's the one we get stumbled on sometimes. And he's against this. He says, so let none of you, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. Don't let anybody judge you. They are a shadow of things to come. The substance is of Christ. If I have my wife with me, I don't take her picture out to eat in the evening. Right? I take a flesh and blood, living, breathing, talking. Her hair smells pretty. I like the sound of her low voice. She's going to say crazy stuff. Last night she brought me a treat in my study. I was in my study. She said, I want you to have a treat, but I'm going to throw it at you. I said, can, we just, like, can you just hand it to me? I'm getting old. She says, no, if you want the treat, I'm going to throw it at you. 
So she chucks it at me. Boom. You just, that's just the girl I live with. I don't understand that. That's why I didn't live with a picture. I live with a girl who throws treats at you in the evening. Just if she's, if she's in the mood to do that. We don't, we, don't have, we don't live with a picture of Christ. We live with Christ. He indwells us. So we don't let anyone judge us in these things. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says, don't let others judge you in this Sabbath thing. And then if that's true, then we shouldn't judge others either, right? Romans 14, this is a reference to uh, Paul's kind of wrapping up things in the epistle to the Romans. And he's gone through the great heights, if you will, the great heights of theology. And then he's talking here about, you know, committing yourself as... uh, uh, as a living sacrifice, and then he fleshes out the details. And one thing he says is, you know, you have the Jewish people among you, and some of them are taking this day and esteeming that day, and others. And he says, one person esteems one day, that should say one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. How you work out your Lord's day observance or what people do about these other things, that's between them and the Lord. And so we're not to allow other people to condemn us, and we're not to condemn others. This is repeated again, and this is a serious problem. Jesus saw it happen all the time. Now, when the Jerusalem Council convenes, it's, it's recorded in Acts chapter 15, right? And in Acts chapter 15, they're deciding, what are we going to require the Jewish converts to do? And these would be the ones who had this kind of burden of the legalism kind of hanging over their head like a dark cloud. And there were, there were some of these that were influencing the discussion of the early church. And so they're having, a, they're having a meeting, and they're going into closed meeting with the apostles and elders and leaders, and they're trying to discuss what they can do. It's kind of like what we do here. We have a closed meeting. We try to work out details. We try to come to a oneness of mind there. And then we bring it to a public meeting where we try to have a oneness of mind in the public meeting. This is the picture of New Testament, how the New Testament church family is supposed to operate. And here you have, they go into closed session, and what did they require? Do they require Sabbath observance? Let's vote. How many of you say they require Sabbath observance? Raise your hand. You're right. They didn't require that. Look what it says right here. It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Church needs to hear this today. We shouldn't make it difficult for Gentiles. When people are on the edge of hell and they're turning to God, we should not add additional things to make it difficult for them. Right? We should not add additional things to make it difficult for them. We should be very careful with people who are turning to God. Gentiles who are turning to God. Do not add laws to God's law to make it difficult for people who are on the edge of hell to turn to God. This we should be very careful about. Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, and the meat of strangled animals from blood. They, had, they, they, they made a decision to have a couple things that were biblical writ and one thing that was just a wise way of handling things for a short period of time, this is what we want you to do. But they didn't say you continue to keep the Sabbath. So that's an interesting thing there. Why is it that we have such a longing for Sabbath? Because our bodies need it. Why is it that we have such a longing for Sabbath? Because our souls need it. Why else? Because we're destined for rest. We're created for rest, we're redeemed for rest, and we're destined for rest. The Bible teaches that one day, the way the Bible describes heaven is rest. The way describes, the Bible describes hell is no rest. It's right there in Revelation 14, verses 11 and 13 and verse 11. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. But then about those who are believers, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. 
from now on, they rest from their labors. So the scriptures teach this. This was hard for me to, initially this was hard for me to understand when I was uh, young. There were a couple of things that influenced the way I looked at ministry. One was my dad, and my dad never stops moving. He always has his tie on, and he's always doing something. He's uniquely blessed with that temperament. Skinny guy, works off all those calories. He's always moving. My idea of ministry, my dad was a bivocational pastor, so usually he worked two or three jobs, and so he worked maybe two jobs and pastored the church, so he's always moving. And kind of my idea was you always have to be moving. Now, God wired me a little different than that. I work hard, but I'm a social kind of a guy, too. Sometimes I like to stop and talk with people and sip a cup of coffee, and, and uh, I don't always have my tie on. And so the other thing that influenced me, maybe even more than that, was the stories from the heroes that I read. You know, the Christian heroes in our little neck of the Christian woods were people that went soul winning all the time. And they were really aggressive in their soul winning. They had a little spiel down, kind of a sales pitch. They would go after people, and they wouldn't let them talk. They would just kind of corner them and take them through that sales pitch and get them to the close and then close and close and reclose until the person kind of like caved in. You kind of wrestled them across the line, and then you kind of corralled them down the aisle on Sunday morning, and then you kind of wrestled them into the baptistry, and you didn't. And then, then you let them talk. You know, after they got their tithe envelopes, then you let them talk a little bit and and the idea that i always had was these guys never stop they're always on the job they never rest it was the picture that i had and that's in all those little books that i read that's what what they were doing and so that my idea of ministry was ministry is an unrelenting burden a burden that really never stops you just keep working at it i mean after all people are perishing and then it got worse when i got into ministry i went to work uh, for with a pastor um and I'll just call him Herman. That wasn't his real name. And Herman did, uh, he, I think he rested, but he didn't believe in me resting at all. He, he, um, he, had, uh, he was at an empty nest stage in life. He, his, his kids were, were gone, and, and they were away, and they, they weren't around. And, and his wife worked full time. And uh, he then didn't have you know, anybody to go home to or little children at home. That wasn't the way it was with me. I was very young. And I have four, we had four children at the time. I wanted Lois to be happy. I wanted to get to know my kids and raise them. I, I needed some time with them, but I was the assistant pastor in charge of, like, everything. And I was the youth guy, and I led the choir, and, and I uh, did bus ministry. And so it was every day, and then it was Wednesday night, late into the night. And then there was the calling on Tuesday night, and there was the bus calling on Saturday morning. And then I never really felt like I made this guy happy. During that time, he told me that I had a responsibility to take some students to Word of Life Island in Screw Lake, New York. This sounds like a good thing, but I wasn't allowed to take my family with me. And so reluctantly, I get in the van and I drive these kids all the way from Michigan, all the way up into upstate New York. My idea is I'm going to be with these campers all week and I'm going to, you know, just watch what they're doing and encourage them. But when I got there, they separated me from the campers. The campers went over to the island on a ferry. And they said I could go over in the morning and visit. I could go over in the evening and visit again. But that they were going to be really busy and involved and, and they didn't really want me tagging along there and babysitting them. And so they put me up in a place called the inn. There were two places you could stay. 
One is, was kind of like the Olympic Village. It was very posh and nice. And the other was the old original Word of Life Inn, which wasn't air-conditioned. It was an old Adirondack Inn. It was a gorgeous week. It was cool. I had a roommate who turned out to be a really fascinating guy, which is a great story for another time. But it was a, it was a really interesting week. During that week, there were some preachers that were there, and there was some delicious food, and there was a bookstore. I went to the bookstore one afternoon, and I found this little volume called Pleasant Paths by Vance Havner. I'd heard about Vance Havner, and, and the book looked short, and it had a beautiful cover. The cover was an autumn scene with a man about my age now walking down a dirt road under these beautiful autumn trees, and the, and the, and the, and the title said Pleasant Paths. That so appealed to me. So I bought that book, and in the Adirondacks of New York, they have this unique outdoor chair called an Adirondack chair. They're the kind of chair you can get in, but you can't get out. And they're just beautiful. And they had them dotting the hillsides all over there. And so I pulled one of those chairs over under a big feathery white pine, and I pointed it at the lake, and I opened that little book, and it changed my life. Because for the first time, I read a pastor who told me it was okay to rest sometimes. And you know what he did to prove it? He did something very powerful. He used, he used Jesus Christ as an example. Vance Havner wrote in the book, Our Savior's calm, peaceful journeys over Galilee with a band of plain fishermen and lowly working men would have exasperated some of our modern church specialists who would have rejected the Twelve because they didn't have college diplomas. But after all, that lowly group started something that's never stopped, and we moderns cannot begin to match the gate of Galilee or the pace of Pentecost. Our Lord never wasted His time. There are other ways of wasting time than just doing nothing. It can be wasted by doing too much. Idleness is the devil's workshop, but so, it, 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 so is the wrong kind of busyness. The Bible has plenty of verses to stir up the saints, and most of the saints need some stirring. But there are just as many verses about resting in the Lord. He does not favor loafing, but he doesn't frown on resting. It is a poor song that has no rests in it. Jesus was busy, but he was never in a hurry. Can you imagine how my soul drank that in? And I made, I made two decisions sitting in that Adirondack chair. Number one decision was, I'm going to read everything Vance Havner has ever written. I've kept that promise to myself. And I own everything he's written. The other thing was, I'm going to quit that church and go someplace else. And I did that too. The Confessions of St. Augustine, I hadn't read them at the time. If I had, I would have realized that early on, his biography is like a prayer to God. Augustine says, Lord, you've made us for yourselves, and our souls are what? Restless. Until they find their rest in you. And Jesus, our Savior himself, came along and said, Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus said. Eugene Peterson has written well on this. He said this, and he's talking about a, a preacher of the gospel is, a, is a, a preacher of works or grace. A grace, right? Not works. Not works. So he says, If I always work and never rest, how will I ever convince anyone to live by faith and not by works? I'm an under-shepherd. If, if I'm in perpetual motion, how can I ever lead the sheep to a quiet place beside the waters that are still? And Eugene Peterson, in his books on ministry, which I cherish, he, he says that when Jesus talked about effective ministry, he used interesting metaphors. He would use the metaphor of a seed, which works quietly and silently and simply. He used the metaphor of leaven, which works simply and quietly and silently and secretly. 
He used the metaphor of salt. He said ministry is like seed, like leaven, like salt, which works quietly over time, peacefully. These are the metaphors that Jesus used. And so when I was growing up, I used to think, this is the, these are the two questions. How many hours have I prayed? And how many people have I witnessed to? But I, and that was fine. But I never really thought to ask, how many hours have I listened to God? And how many hours have I listened to people? who are perishing, so that I can feel around the edges of their souls, so I know the place where the gospel goes in. Why is it that we have this profound longing for rest? Well, we're created, our bodies are created for it. Our souls are redeemed for it. Our destiny, our future, is a future of rest, the Bible says. Why did God create in our hearts such a powerful longing for rest? So that we would be restless until we find our rest in him. When I was going through the same period of time, I remember looking up to a pastor whose name was Joe Stoll. Joe Stoll pastored here in Michigan, not far from us, but after that he was called to be the president of Moody Bible Institute, and he served there faithfully for over 20 years, a powerful ministry as the president of Moody Bible Institute. I was at Cedarville College one day, and there was a panel discussion, and Joseph Stoll was on the panel Somebody asked him the question about ministry. He said, Pastor, you know, how do you balance your schedule? You know, how, like, how do you do that? Joe Stoll's answers stuck with me all these years. Joe Stoll said, well, I, I, when I was a young pastor, I told a lady once I couldn't meet with her because she, she wanted to meet on my day off. And the lady said to me, well, the devil never takes a day off. And he said, then I said to her, he said, I was young and foolish then, well, the devil isn't my role model. Jesus is my role model, and Jesus, sometimes he took the day off. He rested. And so, go away from here, and by all means, work hard for the Lord. You have to work hard. We'll talk about that later. But by all means, rest in your soul, and your body, and in your spirit. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute. I remember last week, you promised, last week, you promised us that you would give us very specific and practical ideas about how to rest. How many of you remember that promise? All right, you just raise your hand. All of just raise your hand right now. Just go ahead, just raise it. Make me feel good. Yeah. Next week, I will, keep, <laughs> I will keep that promise. I'd like to ask you, like to ask you to stand, and we're going to close in prayer. And a song. Sorry, we're going to close in a song in prayer. So stand with us as we as the the group comes and uh, and leads in this beautiful song about the kingdom work that's done secretly, quietly, in a rhythm of work and rest.